Thank you, Dr. Hank. Uh, I would like to start this this morning uh, by asking Mike Alexander to lead us in an opening prayer. Thank you, Mike. Let us. Um, this is such a an important uh, conversation this morning. And because of uh, what we're involved in, I just ask that everyone clear their minds, their hearts, their souls, and just be ready to in receive what, uh, what's about to occur. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you so much. We thank you for the blessings that you have bestowed upon each of us. And Father, we just thank you for giving us this opportunity to come together to talk about such an important yet complex situation. We see a pandemic across this world and we see civil unrest everywhere. And we have seen the space that you have created for us to step into and have crucial conversations about life, about race, about relationships, about humanity, about dignity, about significance, about respect. And Father, just thank you. And although the world may look at this as a tragedy, there are great opportunities that will come from this if we be patient and, and allow your guidance. And perhaps everyone on this, this call doesn't believe in uh, you, like some of us perhaps do, Father, but we don't believe in doing such an important thing without involving you. Thank you, Father. Be with the, the panelists this morning. Give them what they have prepared themselves to speak about. Open their hearts, open their souls, open their minds so that they can step into that space that you have created for them to be able to be authentic. Be with us, Father, guide us, protect us, and forever love us. For this we pray in your darling Son, Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right. Thank, thank you, Mike. <clears throat> well, I would like to welcome you all to uh, Clearing the Pathway, Understanding the Why. I'm Mike Wilson, uh, co-founder of the Lion Strategy Group and a retired chief of police. This is the second part in our series titled Clearing the Pathway for Healing and Policing in America. Following our first discussion on July 1st and in preparing for this conversation, um, I know that I conducted a lot of research uh, specifically over the last hundred years around policing in America and civil movements. And I found myself repeatedly drawn to the historical work of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I really reflected on uh, Dr. King's dream for America. The, and I believe that that pursuit of that dream still is relevant today as it was back in the 60s. His dream was to have one America, an America who did not view, perceive, or judge based, off, uh, based on differences, but who embraced and saw worth in every person and afforded each person the same rights and opportunities no matter where that person came from or what they believed. Specifically, I was drawn to Dr. King's speech, The Other America, which he delivered at Stanford University in 1967. I believe this speech reflects how many Americans feel to today. Dr. King spoke of the prevalent challenges facing our country, 
uh, one of the greatest challenges being living harmoniously in a very diverse world, a world that we've seen become more based on what sets us apart than brings us together, a world focused on who to blame rather than take accountability, and a world in need of healing so that no more of our most vulnerable have to perish. In Dr. King's speech, he spoke of two Americas. The first America was one that was beautiful, overflowing with prosperity and opportunity. Uh, in this America, people have food and material necessities for their body, culture and education for their minds, and freedom and human dignity for their spirits. This America provided people with opportunity for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness in all of their dimensions. And the young people in this America grow in the sunlight of opportunity. But then he spoke of a second America, one that has a daily ugliness that transforms hope into fatigue and despair. In this America, many are jobless and are constantly searching for jobs that do not exist for them. In this America, the millions of people find themselves living in deplorable and unsafe conditions. People are poor and they find themselves on an island surrounded by material prosperity. In this America, Dr. King spoke of the tragedy that's inflicted on the children, growing up in despair, void of hope, and unable to realize their dreams. And he referenced many people from various backgrounds who live in this America. You know, some are Mexican-Americans, Puerto Rican, Indian, Asian, Many are white, but in this America, one of the largest groups in proportion to its size and population are the African-Americans. I believe if we silence the noise and we listen, our protest and protesters are telling us they want one America, an America where all are united in the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness. Dr. King references this and provides a solution that I believe applies to today. And, and I'm just gonna quote a small segment from his speech. If we're to bring America to the point that we have one nation indivisible with liberty and justice for all, there are certain things we must do. The job ahead must be massive and positive. We must develop massive action programs across <clears throat> all over the United States of America in order to deal with the problems. That's the purpose of these discussions. And this is why we brought forward clearing the pathway for healing and policing in America. To promote the collective understanding of the why behind these reoccurring events and reactions and to establish a pathway with collective input to ensure that we, our children and grandchildren live in an America where the pursuit of life, liberty and happiness is afforded to all no matter where we may come from or how we may look or what we might believe. We have to move away from this notion that time heals all wounds. And we always have to remember the role of our police officers in society. Police officers are designed for service to society. This is a point ever to keep sharply in mind. Dignity, significance, character, are holy attributes of the, of the individual police officer. Therefore, as we hold the space between order and chaos, which we identify as a thin blue line, 
We must remain vigilant and stand firm in the faith of what the profession stands for. We must remember why we do what we do. And we do what we do out of love for mankind. And love is blind. And we must always remember, as Dr. King stated, time is always right to do right. So with that, it's my honor to introduce our panelists to you. I would like to thank them all for giving them their time uh, to engage in this uh, um, uh, critical conversation with us. I'd like to start with Dr. Anthony Brown with the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, he specializes in curriculum and instruction in African diaspora studies. Ms. Carrie O'Donnell, who holds an MA in education with a certification in traumatic studies. She is a somatic experiencing practitioner, Enneagram teacher and coach, mediator, specializing in conflict resolution and organizational development. Dr. Roy Alston, <clears throat> graduate of the United States Military Academy at West Point, who holds a PhD in organizational change and is a retired major with the Dallas Police Department. Ms. Susan Hudson, a doctor of jurisprudence, who has served as a police monitor for the Los Angeles Police Department, Austin Police Department, and who now currently is with the city of New Orleans. And Dr. Hank Seitz, a mental scientist and behavioral psychologist and very good friend. So with that, thank you all for, for being here and we'll go ahead and jump into uh, our uh, questions. But first, just a little housekeeping. If you have questions, uh, please, uh, there's a chat feature uh, and you can uh, message me directly with your question. We'll try to get to them uh, as best as, as we can. We want to hold any comments for our, for our panelists only, only because we have a short amount of time and a lot of uh, uh, conversation that needs to be had. Uh, so with that, uh, to set up our first question for the panelists, and for the panelists, it's a free flow. So once the question is posed, feel free to unmute yourself and, and take it away. As you all know, today is going to be a deeper dive to discuss factors that are contributing to the overwhelming voice being projected across the country as it relates to relationships between our law enforcement officers and community, more specifically, our communities of color. So the first question is, in your thoughts or perspective, what do you believe are these factors? And I will mute and turn the floor over to you all. Well, I guess I'll, I guess I'll start the conversation. Um, so for communities of color in this country, there is a legacy of trauma. And that legacy of trauma goes all the way back to the 1700s in colonial America. Um, and that legacy of trauma has been um, consistent all the way up until, until now. So you see in the 1700s, uh, when we first started bringing slaves to colonial America, um, the colonists realized very quickly that they were outnumbered and they had to really control the large number of slaves that were there. So we see the emergence of slave patrols in the 1700s in, Cal in uh, South Carolina. Those slave patrols were really designed to, um, to terrorize and punish and kill, mutilate, destroy any uh, person of color that was found off their plantation or if there was trouble on the plantation to do that. These individuals were a group of heavily armed white men and their goal was to control uh, individuals of color. 
we see this uh, we, we see this relationship mature over time. Um, so right after the Civil War takes place, Reconstruction takes place. Uh, there's a huge backlash in the South um, for Reconstruction. They moved from slave patrols to formalized police departments. Well, they weren't in the South. It wasn't really police departments. It was more like sheriff's offices. In the North, it was more like police departments. But in the South, they, you know, they, these 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 terror groups really began to emerge right after Reconstruction. So we see the rise of the KKK, and we see the rise of formalized police departments, sheriff's offices in the South. And their goal was really to uh, enforce the oppression of Black people in this in this country to deny them their rights uh, that came after the Civil War and after the Emancipation Proclamation that freed them, and really to limit their progress. And it was an economic thing, right? So you, you, you free a, a large amount of people in the South, their economy was agricultural. We still needed people to work the fields. So there became this partnership between criminal justice police and, um, and the people who put, you know, enforced those rules. So, we start to criminalize the idea of being black. I mean, simple things, Jim Crow laws, vagrancy laws, uh, things like that, that criminalize actually being black in this country. So if we can't enslave them, we will imprison them. And when they imprison them, Matt, so, we, so it's criminalization of being black, which led to mass incarceration ultimately. And these individuals were loaned out for free to these plantations to work. So. And then, you know, after that period, so the civil rights era emerged, we find local police departments, sheriff's offices on the wrong side of social change. You see what happened during the civil rights area, Bull Connor and his dogs, whores, I mean, uh, attacking uh, peaceful protesters, and then uh, using fire hoses on people, uh, you know, the, the massacres that happened in some of these very peaceful protests. And then we see uh, in the 70s, where we flooded black neighborhoods with drugs, we criminalized this drug behavior, which really began with mass incarceration in this country. But it wasn't really until 1994 that the criminal justice system was really used as a mass incarceration tool. We put more, we put more African Americans in jail uh, under the Clinton administration with the crime bill of 1994 than we did in our entire history as a country. So we saw more African Americans. So here again, this is a criminal justice system that is uh, on the wrong side of social change. And even up until now, we see our response, right? Our collective response to peaceful protests across this country. We're still seeing a militarized police force um, meeting peaceful protesters. We're still seeing gas being sprayed on peaceful protesters. And so it's kind of crazy because we've learned all these lessons of what not to do. And we're still doing, making these same mistakes over and over. So it's a legacy of trauma. It's really um, what's happening in white communities of color really don't uh, trust the police. And it's hard for them to trust. So, so I'll make it personal. My mother grew up in Bessemer, Alabama in 1930s. And uh, as a kid in Bessemer, Alabama, Johnson County, ranked number 13 for number of lynchings in this country. It was not unfamiliar for her to see the police pull people out of their houses and allow them to be lynched, uh, people of color. So can you just imagine what that would have been like as a child observing this? And then what you have to do is, you communicate that to your offspring, right? The police are not to be trusted. They're not, they're not here for us, they're not. So we have an entire generation of people who live through this era and then they pass that message on to their kids and they pass it on to their kids. So it's, it's, it's but at, at the same time, the police don't do anything to, to alter that perception. They kind of fall into it. 
So it's, it's traumatic and we, we have to kind of recognize that for what it is. Any other thoughts from our other panelists? Thank you, Dr. Alston. Yeah, I would also just jump in and say, uh, Ms. Susan speaking, I would just jump in and say that we have not had enough community uh, control of the pol of police. It's always been the police know what's best for the police. And so that has caused a huge imbalance between the community and policing right now. And, we're, and that balance is trying to be righted right now. And uh, I think we've got a chance to do some of that. So I hope we will continue to uh, allow the community to be more involved in policing decisions, uh, policing priorities, um, and uh, I believe that's going to help as well. Because if you're, you know, if you just use violence to kind of, as Roy was explaining, to control populations, well, then there's violence within those, it begets more violence within those populations. So if we can move to some more discourse and democratic control of policing, I think we're going to have a better, um, better results overall. And right. many of us, similar to Roy, have, uh, uh, you know, horrific familial stories uh, over time about what's happened to their loved ones. Um, so I would just say there's those scars run deep. Okay. Yeah, and you know, as Susan brings up a really good point, that point is being that, um, you know, for a long time, it was always the police and the community. It was, right, so the community was always willing to, they're willing to accept the authority of the police if that authority is legitimate. The only problem is over time, we have diminished our legitimacy. We have done very little to increase our legitimacy. You know, I, I find it very striking when police departments say, <clears throat> there's always people running around saying, well, you're either for the police or you're against the police. Let me tell you the big lesson we learned in Ferguson, Missouri. So mass protest 2014, Michael Brown was shot and killed by Darren Wilson. <clears throat> and when we, when we actually sat the community down and talked to them, their biggest question to us was, how can we help the police be better? It wasn't this national narrative on, we want to get rid of the police or, get, you know, they, they really wanted the police to be better because every community recognizes that a democratic society does not exist without the police. But we want the police to be better. We want them to stop targeting us. We want them to stop the abuse. We want them to stop uh, creating debtors prisons and putting people in jail and, and doing stuff that doesn't, and they're not treating everybody exactly the same. So I really, it really kind of frustrates me because they, we need civilian oversight of the police. The police need to recognize they work for a community and they serve a community and that community should have a voice. But the system has been set up for so long to where people don't even know where to insert their voice to control the police. And now they're, and to Susan's point, communities are stepping up saying, we want, we want the control that we should have always had and now police officers and police organizations are a little offended because, well, now you want to control me? Well, we should have always been in control of the police. There should no be no entity of government that functions as a government entity that the civilian population does not have control over. <clears throat> Great comments. So what would we be safe in uh, saying that we've moved from, from a model in a design of where if you go back to Sir Robert Peel, the father of modern day policing, you know, he's going with the police are the public and the public are the police, which speaks to, you know, the, the community lays out the expectations and the desires of the type of police department that they want to have. But it looks like we've, we've transitioned from some of uh, your comments and what I've experienced 
to communities now uh, give the police departments that they can tolerate. And it's not until, you know, it's at breaking point that there's that change elicited. Uh, so great, great comments. Um, I'd like to move on to our, to our set, second question. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Alston, for bringing up legacy trauma because that sets up uh, que our question number two is, is let's try to get a little granular. Uh, what is legacy? So we've, we've defined what legacy trauma is uh, through the great, the great examples. Um, but I'd like to, to pro provide the official definition of transgenerational trauma, which is uh, it's a psychological term which asserts that trauma can be transferred in between generations. After the first generation of survivors experiences trauma, they are able to transfer their trauma to their children and further generations of offspring. Uh, so operating from that definition, what role do you believe legacy trauma is playing in the events today? So, oh, go ahead, go ahead, Carrie. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. So I'll just I'll jump in and I'll I'll add here. You defined uh, transgenerational trauma as psychological, and there's been a lot of research done on epigenetics, which basically says that trauma can overlay a chemical on uh, you know someone's DNA um, and genes. So it's a modification of gene expression. And so it can be handed down through the nervous system from generation to generation. And, um, you know, the number one job of our nervous system is to protect us. And it's our autonomic nervous system, which means it's automatic. And so when we have these influence of both psychological and genetic trauma, epigenetic trauma, the nervous system is going to respond. Um, and we all some of us are familiar with some of those responses, fight, flight, freeze, and the automatic nature of it because it's in the service of survival. So, um, you know, I think from my perspective and my background in training, it requires a strong understanding of the role and function of the nervous system and how, you know, when we see it on videotapes of police who are overreacting, or they're acting out of proportion to what's actually happening in the moment, you can see that they're being hijacked by their nervous system. They're going into reactivity that's removed from what the actual circumstances are. And that's on the side of the police, and we've seen that, the overreaction. Um, and, it, and it's true for the community as well, even more so, that the community is being triggered as well. And so um, when someone's triggered by their nervous system, there, all of the blood flow goes to the extremities, the arms and the legs to fight or flight. And they can't even hear instructions that are given to them in many cases. And they just follow what it is their body wants to do, either flight, flee, run away, or fight. And it's automatic. And so, you know, in the same way that police need a good understanding of how their own nervous system functions to understand how those in the community who have been traumatized, you know, if they're not listening to your orders, whatever they are, it's because they've become hijacked by their nervous system and they're going to turn and run, right? Because that's what they're being hijacked by their nervous system, flight, right? Run away. So from my perspective, I think all the groups, the police officers in the community need to understand 
what are the effects of this trauma? How is it hijacking my nervous system and how do we, how do we understand it and how do we work with it? Yeah, so I grew up in, a, I, I grew up in uh, Suffolk County, Long Island, New York, in a community that was redlined for many, 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 many generations. And that's a hell of another topic, but so it was all a community of color. And I'll tell you, we never called the police. My, my parents said, never call the police. We all talked to the police. And if the police ever showed up as kids, we really didn't know why we just took off running. And to, to, and to Carrie's point, and it was simply because we knew that the police were, were not to be trusted and somebody was either gonna get hurt or killed uh, and interacting with the police. So you just take off and run and you hide from the police. And that's what we kind of grew up with in, in New York, Long Island, New York. Because I will tell you back then, so Nassau County Police Department, the longest serving police department under a consent, a federal consent decree. I think they're still under a consent decree from the 70s. Um, they were not, they were not to be, I hate to put it this way, they were, they were just not to be played with. If they showed up, you knew somebody was going to get hurt or killed. So you did you avoided the police. And if they and if they if they rolled through your neighborhood, you just ran into, you just ran. And uh, sometimes they would jump out of their cars and attempt to chase us, but you know, being young and spry, 10 years old, there was, there was no chance. So they were going to catch right. us. But, but that's, that's what that was Carrie was talking about, right? So I, I, it wasn't because I had any personal interaction at the police 10, 11 years old. It was simply something that my mother told me, if you ever see the police show up, you get out of here and get home. And, uh, and because the bad things were about to happen. Thank you both. Susan, I'd like to, oh, go ahead, Susan. Yeah, go ahead. You had a question? Oh, no, I was going to comment just in the sense that one perspective to add to this, and I appreciate the historical perspective, one of the things is just there's also an anchoring, a particular perspective related to Black men that go back to that same period that you mark up. I would even say from the Enlightenment era up all the way through Reconstruction. And I know one of the questions that we had before, like what things have remained the same? So taking the perspective, not just of those that have been traumatized, but the, the kind of schema or perspectives that are held, are not just held in place by corrupt thinking. I know sometimes we think about police officers or teachers or people serving those, and they do things that seem dysfunctional or they're out, they're, they're misaligned with what is necessary in that the interaction. I would argue that much of that historically comes from the, the set of ideas that have always been in place about African-Americans, African-American men in particular, and then one stable thing, and it's a binary, blackness and whiteness vacillates between those. There have been theological defenses that suggest that African-Americans themselves are uh, accursed people. Uh, and those ideas were put in place to justify and react to anti-abolitionist movements. Scientists that were involved in the conversation, I can great, go in great detail about every portion of the body is the function of the purpose to either work in labor and toil in labor or to engage in some type of over-sexuality. So the physical body itself is, is perceived in that way. And these ideas remain stable. Um, literary scholars call them tropes. They change over time, but they remain the same. Uh, we see presence of them. So if our mindset has this kind of repetition that continuously sees a particular group in a certain way, we're just consciously going to see that group in that way, and we're not able to see them any other way, um, and to the point where we can't—we don't necessarily even have to reference where those ideas come from. Well, one of the things I ask students 
when they take, I'm a professor at UT Austin and I ask questions about where do ideas that they, you hold, where do they come from? And they, they never can trace them. And one of the reasons why they can't trace them is psychologists talk about this idea of, of, of schema and then those that do race is racial schema. They come through repetition. And, and once something becomes implicit, you no longer have a reference point as to where it comes from. It is only, it's like the way we think about blue and boy, pink and girl. They're con socially constructed ideas. But what I'd say for African-Americans, they have such a long history of repetition. Repetition of fear, repetition of physical, uh, over physicality, all, all rooted in myth, either through science or theology. And in many cases throughout the 20th century, social science played a huge role in, in, in defining what African-Americans are. So when, when practitioners of all kind come in contact, police officers, doctors, teachers, they come with those sets of ideas, that schema, those ideas shape what they do. And they, they're disconscious. They may not even necessarily match the way they perceive the group. That's the scary part of it, that people miss an implicit bias. And implicit bias means you, your ideas are, sometimes your expressed ideas are inconsistent with your actions. Now we know in some cases we could, you know, I know um, Mike Alexander has talked about this, People's, people's perceptions are usually tied to those actions in the incidents, the cases we're seeing here. But in many cases, we know the issue really has to do with the perceptions we hold about the, the participants we're coming in contact with. I'll share a quick example and I'll move forward. Doctors interact, there was a study done in New York City. And they said, doctor comes, African-American man comes into the office, phenotypically African-American, right? He looks, he's, that's, that's the only way you're using physical features of what he is to identify him as a black American. Now there are three, for a cardiologist, there are three different ways in which you could look at the data related to black men. If you were born in this particular study, if you were born in New York, you're gonna have a completely different orientation towards health and your heart and the issues related. If you were born in the South, a whole different set of data. And if you're born in the Caribbean, a completely different set of data. So what should doctors use when that African-American man comes into the door that is one born in New York, one's born, what's, now it doesn't mean that we need this very spe specific kind of matrix of ideas that are attached to a group. But I do think that we have a single mindset attached to people that look of African descent. That's why students, immigrants that come that look African-American experience many of the same things because it, it, race plays out and by the way we see and, and enact those ideas in those contexts and it happens in every facet of society including police departments of course this is the ones that get the greatest attention and maybe teachers the work that i do so i think it, it, it is rooted it, it it traumatizes those that receive it but it is perpetuated by the sets of ideas that have been around since the enlightenment era yeah yeah, and so Anthony brings up some really interesting points. And I have to point to a significant historical event that happened in this country in 1915 when the movie Rise of a Nation was released in this country. It was probably the first blockbuster movie ever released in this country. It was the first movie ever screened in the White House. And it really, it, 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 it was really about the glamorization of the KKK. And it really, everything that Anthony talked about in regards to what we perceive about the black male in America was categorized in that movie in a very cartoonish, gross, 
inaccurate way. The whole idea of being <clears throat> this uncontrollable savage who was after uh, white women or overly sexed and this and that. So it, be, it literally became the national conscience in 1915. And it continues to perpetuate itself to this day, the whole idea of what the black male is. And even up until 1994, when Hillary Clinton sat before the Senate committee and, and called young black men super predators in regards to how to control. So in 1994, when President uh, Clinton was trying to get reelected, he introduced the, the crime bill of 1994, which really militarized the police in this country and literally singled out young black males as the enemy of this country. And she sat before the Senate and called them uh, super predators. We have to be on the lookout for these super predators, and we and it just it just it just it just kind of goes back. We don't know. We don't really know why. In the conscience of America, we can point to some things that happened back in 1915, the rise of a nation. But over time, these notions just become as simple as pink is pink, white is white, black is black, and black is bad, and everything that we have. And that becomes the, really the conscience of what's going on in this country. People don't really understand why, but it's not about why. It's about the thing that's been planted in our heads generation after generation after generation. I mean, all you have to do is look back at, look back at some of the pictures they show of lynchings in this country, black men being lynched in this country, and they're nothing but massive white crowds standing around, taking pictures. I mean, at one time, there used to be postcards of people lynched in this country, and they were mailed back and forth and of these events. So this becomes solidified in our country and it, and it just adds to, the, to, the, to this traumatic, this trauma that has happened. Uh, so, you know, recently I identified what I call the, the, Floyd, the George Floyd era in America. And um, we're talking about, really about January 2015 all the way up until now. There have been 1,252 African-Americans killed by the police in this country. 99% of those incidents simply did not have to happen. So, right, so we have these families, we have all these families, all this pain, all this angst that has gone unanswered, has gone literally unanswered in this country. And you wonder why 30 million people protest in this country, one man's death, George Floyd. But it's, it's part of an era, a, a recent era that most young people have lived through in this country. And that's not that far off, 2000, 2015, not that far off. Most people, everybody alive remembers all these events that have happened, so. Thank you, Dr. Brett. I, uh, I posted uh, the website that Dr. Alston referenced. Uh, it's called Without Sanctuary. It's just as a caution, it could be traumatizing to see it, uh, but these are, this is the, the person who, who had a, a collection of postcards of lynchings uh, throughout the early 20th century. Um, powerful, but troubling at the same time. Thank you, Dr. Brown. So, Dr. Hank. I'm going to direct a, a question to you, and this is based just off of personal conversations you and I've had, and and your and your role when um, in coming in with with our train our training events, you you talk about the subconscious mind, and you and you talk about how we tend to uh, live life by default if we don't engage. Um, uh, our thoughts with the uh, conscious mind. I think that's very relevant in, in what we're talking about because we're talking about triggers, but how do we take, how do we keep those triggers from just producing that automatic re automatic response? You bet, Mike, and good morning, everyone. 
that uh, this has just been so enlightening and to really understand. And uh, Dr. Olson, I appreciate you know that whole history and understanding it, and then the uh, comments from everyone, all the panelists on uh, having such insight on how deep rooted this is. And so, really, as I was listening to all of this, that. I, I, it, because it is so deep rooted that this just isn't going to come about with, you know, passing laws or whatever. We've had laws that have been done that haven't done it, uh, haven't been effective. And, you know, it is deep rooted. And so to address um, uh, uh, Mike Wilson's comment about, you know, how, how do we change? So, so we kind of looked at, hey, why so far in this? And we understand why, how it happened and what was going on historically on that. And all of us can relate to on how generation after generation, how this happens to us that all of us, when we were young, we said, I'm not gonna be like my mom and dad. <laughs> you know? And then 20 years later, we look and we go, oh my gosh, I'm just like my mom or dad, you know, in, in, in what I've done. So, and, and that is all psychological and it ends up being deep rooted within our beliefs. And so just a little understanding of how the conscious mind is the ruler and controls, but the subconscious mind has listened to the conscious mind uh, since uh, conception. And so has memorized every feeling, every thought and every experience and our subconscious mind thus has an opinion about every subject under the sun. Specifically what we're talking about today on you know, this targeting on how police were brought up to be this way, how um, you know, little black boys were brought up to run from the police. And I just love that the 10 year old could outrun them, right? That's just you know, great. But you know, it was a, it's a, and we just accept this as how it is. So these opinions of our subconscious mind, these dominant opinions of ours is what we call beliefs. And so it is done onto us as we believe, and we're not even consciously aware of a lot of these beliefs. And this was mentioned uh, before, and I love Terry's comments on, you know, it literally from our thoughts, it impacts everything to include our emotional system and our blood system and, and you know, who we are. So really me jumping from us looking at, you know, why did this happen, the history of it, the why, the impact of it, that we're not even aware consciously we're doing it, that it automatically comes. And so the question would be, is there a solution? And fortunately, the answer is yes, there is a solution and there is a way to tap into the subconscious mind and to start changing, improving those beliefs. What we can't do and what most psychologists say is we'll sit on my couch. Well, first of all, we can't have everybody be sitting on the couch, okay? But sit on my couch, we're gonna dig up what the problem is. Well, good luck with that. You'll continue to dig up, dig up, and there's no end to that. So what we do is we overcome those beliefs that no longer serve the freedom of mankind. We each one of us that one of the three top principles why our soul is here is for more freedom. 
And so we, when we don't feel that freedom, our soul is telling us, I want to be free. And so we need to have this reform in order to have our soul's desire on why we came here and one of the principles on this freedom. So the good news is we can tap in to the subconscious mind and improve those beliefs that will then improve the outcomes on how our behaviors are, how our thoughts are, how we, when we're not even aware of it, how subconsciously it takes over and we actually create a, a better world. Now to get into the detail on how to do that, that's probably for another day, but I do want to bring hope that, and I've done it with thousands, tens of thousands, whatever people, that there is a way to change this. And, and so one easy uh, way to provide everybody uh, with, again, without going into a lot of depth, is to start thinking about the things that you do want. And as we all start thinking about, you know, I want freedom, I want freedom for everybody, that I want harmony, uh, that, you know, I, I want to live in this, this America um, where, uh, where the police are my friend and are here to help and to, to serve. And so it's really about each one of our individual thoughts to begin starting to change and thinking more about what we want versus what we don't want. Thank you, Dr. Hank. And uh, uh, Carrie, just a follow up. I'm going to kind of put put you on the spot. I warned you uh, er, er, earlier, but you and I had a conversation last week around this notion of legacy trauma. And uh, Dr. Alston did a great job talking about the transgenerational trauma in impacting our communities of uh, color, going all you know, going all the way back to some of the original origins of, of policing in America. But, but we discussed that, that there may be, I guess, uh, two perspectives of the legacy trauma that are also playing into um, what we're seeing today and historically. Uh, do you wanna talk briefly about that and uh, share? So, um... I think with regard to community members, there are generations, you know, generational trauma, as we discussed. And um, we have some really powerful tools nowadays for healing generational trauma. There are some giants in the field like Peter Levine and Bessel van der Kolk and, and Stephen Porges who all work with the nervous system because that's really where trauma is. It's the trapped energy in the nervous system from a thwarted fight, flight, freeze response, from a thwarted survival response. And so that's the really good news. We have a lot of research and advances in neuroscience in just the last you know, 15, 20 years with really powerful tools. And I'm working to try to get those tools out into communities, especially communities of color where you have this, you know, generational trauma. Um, and I think with regard to police officers, you know, just accumulated stress on the job when accumulated stress is not addressed and it, it builds up again, it's this trapped energy in the nervous system that gets triggered over and over again. Um, and so it's imperative that police officers have a way to work with accumulated stress on the job 
um, either through coaching or therapy, that they don't allow this accumulated stress to build up to become triggered and they get hijacked, you know, and what happens is they're not in the present moment. They're being hijacked by their nervous system and they're not seeing reality as it actually is in that moment. They're being hijacked from something that's happened before. Yeah, and they, again, we have tools for that. We can teach police officers skills on how to work with accumulated stress and trauma and also to, you know, recognize that it's important that you come into the present moment and you're aware of what's happening in this moment now. Right, so Dr. Alston. So I was gonna, I was also gonna add in what Carrie was saying, which is all really great stuff. So, you know, we have to kind of change police culture as well, right? So we, for many years, we, we, we recruit a certain type of person, that A type personality that's willing to run into the darkness and challenge whatever threat is there. Um, we, need to, we need to really start talking and, and um, changing that training to be more emotionally intelligence, cultural sensitivity training, the soft skills stuff that most police officers that we recruit today will say, oh, you know, I don't, that's, that's touchy-feely stuff. That's not what I'm here to do. I'm here to be a SWAT officer. I'm here to, to put the bad guys in jail. You ask most police officers, they'll tell you, what's your job? I'm here to put the bad guy in jail. Well, okay, <laughs> but there's a whole lot of other components to that. But unfortunately, we have failed police officers because we have, we, we, we're consistent in our training. We teach them to fight, we teach them to shoot, we teach them to dominate the enemy. Well, who is the enemy? The enemy is that person that takes off running in an area that is over-policed. Well, I don't understand why that person is running, right? All I know is that person is running and I have to, and I have to do something about that. It's like, you know, you're being sucked into the vortex, right? You're, and, and once you're sucked in, you're not thinking anymore. All you're doing is just trying to survive. And we, so we have to change police culture and let people understand that, look, if you have been on the street 18 months, this is what my dissertation studies showed. If you've been on the street about 18 months and you've seen any level of activity, you're probably suffering from post-traumatic stress. And the, the agency is unable, is not equipped to tell you how to fix you. One event that I remember, and I'll, I'll move on, one event that I remember when I was on the street is I got a call, car on fire, northbound 75, and when I get there, the car is on fire. You ever see a car on fire, the, the flames are actually white from all the gas that's burning. We get to the car, and all I can hear is people screaming inside. And I couldn't help them, because I couldn't get close enough to help them. When the fire department got there and extinguished the flames, I saw four skeletons welded to the metal of the car. Ladies and gentlemen, that is traumatic. Once that call was cleared, no one said, hey, Roy Alston, let's have a conversation, relax, take it easy, maybe you need to go home, you just saw something. I could hear these people screaming in my mind for 30 days after that, but I still had to go to the next call, go to the next call, go to the next call. There was nothing in place to help me um, work with that. So I had to deal with that on my own. Fortunately, uh, you know, I, I've dealt with it pretty effectively on my own, but I, I recognized that I was probably detached from my family, my friends, other people because of this traumatic event. So imagine what an officer has done that uh, felt like when he's been in an officer involved shooting, right? We know you are suffering from trauma because shooting somebody is not natural, regardless of what the circumstance is. But agencies continue to fail over time to address the post-traumatic stress that officers are, uh, are dealing with 
and, uh, and, it, it, is, it has devastating effects on their interaction with the community. Uh, so there you go. Dr. Alston, you know, you, you bring up, and this is, has been a common, a common theme in the previous discussion and today is, is we're not excusing the, the behavior of, of our police officers, but when we look at, at the community, in, the community impact and the trauma that's been inflicted on, on, on different aspects of our community, we also have to look at the individual police officer because that police officer comes from community. You know, they come from the general population and they're also exposed to, to factors. You know, I think from, from that angle, from being a, a chief of police is people are drawn to the profession over the adventure because that's what we've promote, what we have promoted is that, that SWAT guy or that undercover narcotics, you know, that narc or that running and gun and being that modern day gun gunfighter. What we have forgotten is that police officers in America, we're not the warriors, we're the guardians. As a guardian, just like a shepherd, it was a get, it's just a given that if someone threatens my flock, I, you know, that warrior from within is, is going to step out and take care of that threat, but then it's going to go back in and I become that, that guardian. That's why um, uh, that was the original design for policing to, to be the guardians of this democracy. Yeah. So the only, the only thing I will tell you, so, so that has been the, that has been the PR around public policing in America, right? We, we want to be the guardians. Mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately, over time, we have failed to live up to that guardian mentality. Society is now asking, who are you here to protect and serve? If your mission is to protect and serve and be a guardian, who exactly are you protecting and serving? Because if you show up in my community and you shoot and kill somebody or, or you're poorly trained or you're suffering from post-traumatic stress, um, so who are you really here to protect and serve, right? So that, that I get it, and I, and I am big. I am I, I am in support of the guardian mentality. Every police officer should be a guardian. We should be we should be lifting up small children and taking care of them, and, and at the next moment be able to take the sword out and and and, uh, and eliminate the threat to our flock. We should absolutely should be able to do that. Unfortunately, sometimes the uh, the people who are actually protecting and serving are slaying the flock, and they don't understand. And they really don't understand why they're doing that. We have to have to, we really have to help them understand what their role is. And as you know, you were a chief of police, right? So, and I, you know, I'm very, I, you know, it's probably a challenge for you because the system was really not there to, to help identify officers who were having trouble and get them the help they need without having so much pushback from police unions and associations that say, you know, leave that police officer alone. He's just doing his job. Well, hold on a second. We were asking the officers to do a tough job, but we also have to take care of their wellness along the way. Because if they're not well to do this tough job, they're going to go out there and cause real damage, real, really damage. You know, I remember once being a police officer having an argument with a, a union, a, an association president. If you have been in policing any length of time, you know it's, it's, it's really uncommon for an officer to actually fire his weapon and kill somebody. I mean, you can literally go 20, 25 years and never draw your weapon and kill somebody. 
But if somebody was to have two and three shootings in a three or four year period, you've got to look at that person and wonder, hold on a second. This is an anomaly event. It, 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 to, to, have, to fire a weapon at somebody is an anomaly event. And that person needs real help once you've shot and killed somebody. But for an officer to have three or four events, you have to look at yourself and say, what is it about this individual that is causing this person to fire their weapon? Because it is a, an anomaly. The, the, the officer that shot and killed uh, Rashad Lewis, I think in Atlanta, at the, at the Wendy's, I forget his name. I think his name was Rashad Lewis. That officer had already been warned about drawing his weapon against individuals, right? Now, we can have a lot of commentary about that whole scenario, what happened in that parking lot in, in, West, in, uh, in, in Atlanta, Georgia. But the truth is that the red flags on that officer were already up. Why didn't the agency do something about that, get that person the help they need, or, or look, I'll say something like this. You're a great guy, but policing is not for you because there's something about you that is causing real damage to our communities and reducing our legitimacy. But we have this thing with police unions, they, 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 all they do is they protect the worst amongst us. And when they should be protecting the best amongst us and getting rid of those individuals that simply don't have the disposition to be good police officers. So, you know, they, they don't, I don't know if I kind of right. got off the rails Thanks. there, but. Thank you, uh, Dr. Alston. We've we've had a um, a question come up from the audience, talking about behaviors and who is watching these behaviors, and why are they not being addressed before uh, their actions become tragic and the frustration surrounding it. So I'm I'm going to ask uh, 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 one of our non-panelists to speak to this real quick because it's a great question, Mike Alexander. If you can uh, uh, respond to that question uh, uh, real quickly. Well, we have uh, developed a system that will show what an officer looked like coming into the profession, how they change and why they change. What are some of the things that are happening with him or her personally? So we can really take a look, a deep dive into their personal lives and see how that is affecting their work life. And then we can look at the work life and see how those two things are merging that's creating what we call dysfunctional coping strategies in that officer's um, behavior. And it's gonna automatically affect their, their motivation, their satisfaction and their performance. And what we are advocating here is first and foremost, that first line supervisor, the first line supervisor, if anybody's going to see it, he or she will see it first. And what we have a tendency to do when we see those things is, I don't think it's necessarily intentionally, but they become willfully blind. And I think they become that way because they don't know what they don't know. And, and language that I often use around this very issue is that we are normal people, abnormal circumstances, behaving abnormally, and that's normal. In other words, what that is really saying is that there's so much dysfunction happening in a police department that that dysfunctional behavior actually becomes normal behavior and no one knows how to articulate what they see. But it is very identifiable if they slow down and just pay attention to the subtleties. Roy spoke of the history 
Uh, and if you look at any of these officers, you will see that they had a history of violence before it culminated into what actually occurred in a death. Uh, many years ago, I was afforded the opportunity in the Austin Police Department uh, to look at some of the things that were happening in Austin. We had an onslaught of alcohol-related issues. And I'll never forget the chief of police calling me and asking me, he said, Mike, what, what, what do you think is causing that? And I said, chief, I don't know off the top of my head, but I will tell you that it's what you see on the surface is there's a deeper issue. All you've seen is the manifestation of something deeper. If you give me the opportunity and the time, I could give you more concrete answers. So he afforded me the opportunity to go into internal affairs and look at records. And I, I pulled a litany of, of officers who had either committed suicide, who, who got fired, just a litany of things that had happened from serious criminal violations to being arrested for DWI, a domestic violence, suicide. I looked at all of those things. And 99% of those things were actually preventable. Not only that, somebody knew that those issues were going on and, and just didn't say anything because of, you know, we call it the thin blue line, uh, just that code of silence. You just didn't talk about it because um, if I said something about what I saw, then that officer can possibly lose his or her career. But what we didn't realize is that we were enabling bad behavior um, and not knowing that that's exactly what we were doing. But uh, because of that, you know, I developed a, a continuum of showing actually time frame. Roy even mentioned 18 months. You can you can actually start gauging very uh, well uh, about 18 months to two years in that the the officer changing. You can actually see it, uh, and every one of us went through it. And all we have to do, I mean, I can recall all of that, and but I didn't know that was happening to me. And all that required for me was a simple paradigm shift. And once that shift occurred, I was able to look back and, and, and I actually said to myself, oh my God, was that me? Because I didn't know what I didn't know at the time. And thank God, I was able to do something different to change my paradigm. Otherwise, I could have been on what I now call a roll call of casualties. I could have easily been there myself. So. Um, very good question, and uh, one of the things that I will say that uh, Lion Strategy Group, we are looking at being able to deal with human behavior uh, from a proactive perspective so that we are now working to give you tools up front so that if you are proactive by just paying attention and we'll teach you how to deal with the subtleties, how to recognize the subtleties before those subtleties become dysfunctional. Thank you, Mike. Uh, just move, uh, moving forward, did you have a comment, Dr. Alston? Well, no, I was going to say, yeah, great, great comments by Mike. You know, we have to, man, we have to put these early warning systems in place, and it's nothing new. I mean, we, 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 the science is there, the execution is there. We just have to get police leaders to understand that this is a critical part of the job. We have to take care of the wellness of these officers that we're asking to be guardians out there. And we have to just help them because they can be dev have devastating effects. You know, I look at 
one of the things that we, one of the, one of the learnings that emerged out of the mass protests in 2014 in Ferguson, Missouri, we, the Department of Justice created this program where we could analyze video of, of incidents, right? So we can analyze video about what's happening and what's not happening. When what we found was statistically, it has a strong correlation between events that took long periods of time and then they turned into something disastrous, right? So for example, in Atlanta, Georgia, the officer that you know, went up to the guy's window that was sleeping in the car and in the Wendy's parking lot, that, he, he was on that, he was at that call for over 40 minutes before it went bad. And you have to ask yourself, where was the supervisor? Why did that supervisor not show up? When I was on the street as a supervisor, if one of my officers were on call longer than 15 minutes, I was headed towards that call. Because I knew the longer the call took place, the likelihood of something going wrong is gonna happen. And if you look at all these videos, you're saying to yourself, the longer, the longer, so, the, so the, the, the period of time is getting longer, the officer is getting frustrated, the citizen is getting frustrated, and before you know it, they're hijacked and something extreme happens. Where was the supervisor? And when, who's gonna start holding the supervisors accountable for their people in the field? That's probably one of the biggest links that's missing uh, in police organizations, the supervision level to understand that your job is to get out there and keep your guys from getting in trouble. Um, and like, like Mike said, we have to make sure that they don't get in trouble. That, super, that first line supervisor role is so incredibly important and it's so incredibly lacking and weaking and, and weak in police departments across the country. Thank you. Like this, is, this is why the work that Susan does is so important because it's an independent body, uh, independent of policing that can really look at what we're doing from a completely different perspective. They can see what we don't see because we're in the middle of it. And I always say, you can't see the forest for the trees. And when, you know, you have, this is why I don't have problems with uh, oversight committees because we need some oversight because I think it's, it's practically impossible for us to police ourselves. I don't think we do anything uh, wrong intentionally because uh, the majority of police officers are good law-abiding citizens who want to do the right things for the right reasons. And we have given them a tough job to do. Every community ill we have dumped on uh, our police officers because community don't want to deal with it. And, and Dr. Brown talked about that last week. But people like Dr. Brown, Carrie, and, and Susan, they're, they're outside of us. So they see things from a completely different perspective. And it's by time that we start listening to other people about who we are and what we need to do as an organization so that we can merge with the community, be a part of the community, like you mentioned, Mike, uh, Sir Robert Peel, 1829, said the police are the public and the public are the police. The only difference between the two is that the police are paid to give 24-hour service to what's incumbent upon every citizen. So every citizen, so it's not about, and crime isn't a police problem, it's a community problem. So that means, that's why community policing is so important. And, and we have fought, as police officers have fought and fought and fought against community policing. Why? Because it's touchy-feely. And, and community policing is technically, it's very strategic. very strategic. And we can really do some very good work because we can't solve crime by ourselves. You can put a cop on every street corner and you still will not stop the crime from occurring. But if you empower the community to work with us, 
watch the crime rate go down substantially, watch the quality of life for both police officers and community go up. And we are always complaining about pay. If you merge with that community the way we supposed to merge with that community, that community will fight for every dollar you need to support your family. But as long as we fight against the community, that will not happen. That's why uh, Susan's work as oversight committees are so important. And we have a tendency as police agencies to ostracize such group. But that group, if we just empower them to look at us and tell us what we are not doing and should be doing, you will see um, the motivation, satisfaction, the quality of life, healthy work environments, all of that within a police department changed drastically. Thank you, Mike. And that's a great seg segue to our next question. And I'd like to call on Dr. Brown and Susan. It, this is a two-part que uh, question, but it, if y'all could initially speak to it. The first question is, uh, or the first piece is, what virtues do you believe will drive the behaviors in our law enforcement officers that our communities desire? So uh, whoever wants to speak up first. Um, I'll go ahead and take a shot at it. So okay. you bought, Mike, you brought up some great things just a, a little while ago, which reminds me of what I first encountered when I got to New Orleans. I had come from LAPD, which has world-class training. It also had world-class problems, but world-class training to address some of those problems. And I got to New Orleans and they had none of that in place. And one of the things, and Roy mentioned that most shootings could be avoided with better tactics, better training, just a better approach to it. But when I saw in New Orleans that when I talked about tactics, they would they saw that as almost cowardice. Like instead of, you know, holding off on chasing five armed suspects, suspects by one officer, instead of having, you know, uh, putting a perimeter up and those types of things, they saw that as some types of, of cowardice. So the, the, the culture wouldn't allow them to hear what I was saying about the tactical training that would make them safer and make them not have to shoot as much. And then what also was very clear was the trauma from Katrina. And we right now we're living through the trauma of those children, those, those who were children during Katrina are now adults. And so we're dealing with a fresh wave of murders and so on and so forth because these children are now coming of age um, and their trauma was not addressed. But the trauma of the officers during that time period was also not addressed. And so we're seeing some of that continue to bubble up. And when I talked to the police department about dealing with those traumatic issues or dealing with, somebody mentioned alcohol, that's a driver, every, that is an issue everywhere in every police department. And the majority of officers who get fired in New Orleans get fired not for mis use, uh, using force or so on and so forth, but, but for alcohol related issues. Um, and trying to get the police to embrace wellness for officers many years ago, and then rejecting it. It's good to see everything uh, coming along now, but that just goes to that willingness to hear outsiders. You've got to be able to, one of the virtues is you've got to be able to self-critique and also to hear critique. Because when police hear critique, sometimes their ears kind of turn off. Um, but then the second thing I would also say is in line with what we've heard from Dr. Brown, what we've heard from Dr. Olson, and from uh, uh, Dr. Hank and Dr. O'Donnell about um, just being understanding that there are there's a his, there's a reason that these things are occurring there's there's trauma there's history um be willing to listen to that right now we hear uh closed ears and 
just negative like instead of saying the black lives matter thing you seeing black lives matter as being a terrorist organization or a racist agenda or something like that instead of understanding what it's really about so so number one being willing to to hear your own critique but then number two you got to learn the history you've got to learn and know what the, the history of of policing is and racism here in this country so those would be my thoughts thank you thank you dr brown um i want to add to susan's comments and that history plays a major role and i'm going to speak of this in relation to any member that's called person that's called to serve a community, particularly if they're not from that community, doctors, teachers, social workers, et cetera. If, if you have a, a historical perspective about what you enter into, um, you're gonna have a much more complex understanding of how communities react to certain situations. You won't be surprised to how communities react to particular situations. But the kind of historical information that Dr. Alston offered there are tons of really interesting books to look at, not just the history of policing in African-Americans, but the history of African-Americans in relation to communities in general, how schools have served African-American communities, how have hospitals served African-American communities. So the apprehension to any private or public entity or any sector that serves African-Americans, there's been an apprehension to the actually quality of service you'll receive. Um, the, the, the fact that there's gonna be a certain integrity attached to the service you receive. So I think having this deep historical understanding is vitally important. You cannot have compassion without having that historical perspective. If you only see uh, communities as removed of history, that is engaging what I call a form of symbolic violence. If you see a group as only detached from the historical factors that inform that behavior, even if we, you know, I, I, and, I, and I think sometimes we, we lack that perspective. I'll share a quick example of where historical perspectives are vitally important. And even if we gotta focus our eyes on something at the exclusion of everything else, that's, it's socio and it's historical. In that sense that you have to understand that police officers and those that they're coming in contact with are responding to a group of people that have been unemployed, underemployed, in a deindustrialized economy. You're not just re people reacting and saying, I wanna commit crime today. If you understand the historical, the economic, the social forces that have created the conditions for the communities that you now are placed within, and if you know the history of urbanicity, you realize that communities were densely populated like that for work that is no longer there now. So where do people go? And the frustration that comes from malnutrition and closing banks and closing hospitals, there's a structure of racism that engages in that community like a virus. And of course it would impact. My father was on the job for 25 years, Fort Apache, the Bronx. And he talks about being on the job as if he was an outsider. So he talks about being, I mean, and he, he was a very decorated police officer in New York. I have his awards behind me, medals, everything. Too. Served in the World War II, Korean conflict, but he always has this kind of apprehension. So a person as inside as my father was could still feel apprehension. How, how do you think that binary is for those that are civilians re reacting in a variety of, of, of contexts, sometimes in aggressive settings? So no, first virtue is having a deep historical understanding. 
And then to quote my father, I used to ask him, how did you get out of these situations? He says, I had compassion. I come from these communities. I am here, I understand what they're saying. And I don't react to them as in the same way my colleagues react to them. So I say the first virtue and disposition is to have a deep historical understanding of the history of race, not just to the police force, but the socioeconomic forces that have impacted those communities uh, in, the, in, in a very determinate way. And how police officers and communities are all were within this. And you're kind of left with the bag the communities and the police officers, but there's, there's complicity around us. It's, it's, the, it's the industries that have shut down. It is the mayors that have turned a blind eye. Uh, it is the schools that have given over discipline in schools and have given it to the police departments. All of us are complicit in this. If we only see the dimension of the police officer and the person that is being redirected in that context, we lose sight of the the, the scope of complexity that, teacher, that teachers, principals, uh, police officers are contained within. So for me, it, it's supporting Susan's idea that you must have this deep historical understanding. You cannot have that historical understanding. Um, and then I, I, I quoted this before, and for those that weren't here before, it's really simple. The condition is to be able to see people as they are. Ellison said it best. He said, like the bodiless heads you see sometimes in circus sideshows, it is though I have been surrounded by a mirror of hard distorting glass. When they approach me, they see only my surroundings. Themselves are figments of their imagination. The key to underline here, their imagination. Indeed, everything and anything except me. So some of it is as it's not that complex. We choose not to see complexity because we're embedded in a system of ideas a system of reasoning that allows us to separate ourselves from human beings that are in, come in contact with us. So I think there's the aspect of historical consciousness and deep human touch are, are two f key features of being successful in that kind of environment, recognizing that police officers have a, a very difficult job. Thank you both. Uh, and you know, and those, and I, I'm uh, sorry. Yeah. yeah yeah, so we need to move on to, to our last question. Uh, Susan, uh, Dr. Brown, uh, thank you. I mean, really, you answered both questions in your responses, so thank, uh, thank you very much. This last question is, is for uh, the entire board um, because we've, we've unpacked some of the history. We've, we've identified the, that this is a multifaceted uh, issue. Uh, so, again, we, our, our desired outcome is we want to move forward with solutions. So, with that in mind, what should our first step be in addressing this issue today? If there was just one first step in your minds, what would it be? Um, I'll just jump in here. I would love to see, especially in the, in this, in New Orleans, which has a really troubled history of policing uh, it, its community. I would love to see some type of reconciliation. Uh, one of the caller, one of the uh, folks on the last um, meeting that we had a couple weeks ago talked about that. Um, to address the history of what's going on and the trauma that it has caused in the community and to talk about where we go from here. What does policing look like going forward? 
there are a lot of folks talking about defunding. Um, and I'm in agreement with, uh, as Roy was talking about, and others have talked about on here, not having the police do everything. Let's have the police get those who are hurting others in our society. And let's fix the other problems that we need to fix as a community um, differently. And I'd love to have some type of reconciliation though about what's happened, admitting that there's been wrong. Uh, in New Orleans, a woman, um, a young woman whose mother was murdered, actually assassinated by a police officer in the 90, 90s. It took 20 years for the city to say, I'm sorry. 20 years to say that that was wrong. And the guy's been in federal penitentiary and on death row for 20 years and the city could never say that. Um, that's wrong. So let's have one of those types of sessions, at least more than one, but let's start with that um, as we then decide how, what is policing gonna look like going forward? That would be my thoughts, thank you. Thank you. And I like the uh, community oversight and to really get the community involved there and to be those eyes to be able to help guide them. I think that would be, uh, and it's really up to uh, the leaders within the city and the police and, and the community to, um, to get that going because I think that would really um, help to have a better teamwork and working together instead of opposing each other. Thank you, Dr. Hank. I think, I think every police officer must be common ambassador of goodwill, recognize that, hey, look, it wasn't me who did these things to you and I'm here to show you something completely different. The greatest form of apology is behavior change. And if we show up as guardians and you know, there's gonna be initial pushback, I get it. People are gonna say, oh, I don't trust the police. Well, how about you give me a chance for you to trust me and live up to that. And if every single police officer did that over, over time, 10, 15 years, 20 years, we could really change how people see, feel, and experience public policing in America. So we can, we can even actually drive it down to the individual level. Every police officer, every interaction, every time doing his absolute best in the circumstance to, to make people feel like we are being just and right and they can trust us. And as I, you know, a lot of police officers will tell me, hey, Dr. A, well, you're talking about, you know, you don't want to put bad guys in jail. That's not what I said. That's not what I said. We can still put bad guys in jail and pe treat people with dignity and respect. Once a person, once you have, once you have, if you have, even if you have to fight a suspect in the street, once you have control of that person, you render aid and you treat them with dignity and respect. That's it. We, we, and everybody has to understand that. So we can really actually drive that behavior down. Those, those things that Susan talked about and Dr. Hang talked about, yes, we have definitely need that. But each officer needs to understand their unique role in doing that. You know, the other day I saw, I saw a picture of a Chicago police officer who had his middle fingers up to a bunch of protesters. That guy can't be, he should, he should not be a police officer. That, that, that diminishes our legitimacy. So we, everybody has to understand what we do in these uniforms is important and we can change that. Thank you. And I think, oh, Mike, oh, how um, wouldn't Lion Strategy Group really be excellent to be a resource uh, for that, working with the individuals and with the police and with the departments? Yes, sir. We've, uh, we're actually working with many police departments and in cities, uh, not just in the, in the state of Texas, but to bring in this, uh, plat this uh, platform that addresses um, uh, emotional and mental wellness levels, levels of, of health, 
uh, uh, working with Carrie to uh, address the somatic experience, the you know how that engages the uh, the, uh, ner the nervous system, uh, and and we've had great success not just in helping those teams um, uh, recover from a legacy of trauma within the organization or individually and and actually begin to thrive uh you know taking them through recognizing and helping them recognize where they are on the life on the life cycle which is em empirical and uh, uh what strategies can be employed by their uh, leadership to intercede to ensure that they they don't hit that area that we identify as hitting the wall because when you have an individual, it doesn't matter what industry they're in, we're talking about cops, but when they hit the wall, that's when the bad things are going to start to happen. So, so basically our methodology is, is, is all focused on preventing that individual from hitting the wall where we can intercede and bring them to a state of awareness and bring them into, into a, balanced, a balanced state. They may be, once they hit balance, they may be battered, bruised, and scarred a little bit, but they're going to be your strongest force in your community and in your department. So Dr. Brown, you were going to share your first steps. I, I just was going to say is very similar to what Dr. Olson's just stated, which is uh, we, we have to really have an ability to change the perception of the work. I mean, I, I work with teachers. I prepare teachers. I do research on teachers. And sometimes we, we do things that are typical to the, to the student perceiving it. So teachers will do things sometimes in ways that are typical and the students can react in a way that's typical to that. And it's like, you have to break that cycle. And I think this is gonna sound like very simplistic. I think police officers, and I hope, and I, I say this also as an analogy, they need to take the glasses off. They need to take the aviator glasses off. This kind of big, bigger than life, almost robotic. I know uh, Mr. Trins Tristan made this comment the last time we were on the panel, is that there needs to be like an opening. And I think there's a way, I'm not an expert in this field, but there certainly has to be a way for, I've never saw my father with aviator glasses on as a police officer. So I wonder if there is something about this idea of covering yourself, being so like completely removed from the community that is also like reflected in how you, you actually are perceived when you get, when police officers get out of the car. I mean, I know how I react. If I saw do, if I saw the police officer react to me in the ways that they do, it strikes fear. Oftentimes though, police officers will do something very kind and different and it creates a completely different feeling for me. But do they have control of that, in, that situation? Absolutely. And I'm always struck by a teacher that, I mean, teacher, a, a police officer that has an ability to have complete control of the situation yet not have such a kind of lording uh, way about them that it seems like I, I could lose my life in a minute if I make one wrong decision. But certainly they're in control because they're asking the questions. If I broke the law, if I did something wrong or something is happening, how do we get police officers to have those kinds of balanced dispositions? Because I think once you do it, like Dr. Olson said, it's, it's gonna, you're gonna react in the same way. We're gonna, people are gonna call back, they're gonna lash out or they're gonna run. Um, so clearly, what the the officer wears, I think, reflects to what they are, and that has a, 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 a an impact on those interactions. 
Yeah. And I think, that goes, I, think that, I think that goes back to the supervisors, making sure they hold their people. I mean, I was a supervisor on the street. I told my officers, I don't care how busy it is, never pass a child without greeting a child. But you want me to greet children? Yes, greet children. <clears throat> Why? Because that, that very interaction may be the very interaction that changes their perception of the police. And oh, by the way, down the road, that child may be one that gives you information on a crime that just took place that need that you need to help that need that you need to that you need to help solve that particular crime in the neighborhood. So greet people, talk to people, but never ever leave a child ungreeted and uh, and in, in the field. Oh, by the way, I used to give my officers stickers and say, hey, give a give a kid a sticker, give a kid a. We used to pass out teddy bears. We used to do a whole lot of stuff, and people were like, well, that's just touchy feely soft stuff. I, it goes a long way to show the human side of this job because we are just human beings trying to do a very tough job in a very tough scenario. So. Great, great point. Gary? So yeah, I'd like to follow up by saying that greeting a child, nothing like greeting a child to be brought right into the present moment, right into the here and now, great. Um, and I think for my virtue, it would be receptivity. I think, Mike, you describe what we're doing with the Lion Strategy Group as a first step. And so I'd like to just expand on the virtue of receptivity. I think, you know, helping officers get to a state of being where they can, following on what Dr. Brown was saying, see themselves as they are, see themselves as they are, seeing other people as they are to themselves and seeing reality as it actually is. So that's what I would be aiming for in terms of the virtues. Awesome, thank you. I, you know, I want to uh, just thank you all for giving of your uh, time to, to today. And as we know, we're not going to solve all the problems in an hour and a half. Um, uh, and and I know we were, we were shooting for one hour, but the conversation was so great, we we went further. Um, you know, I would just uh, invite anyone who logged in to a view that the third part of this series is going to be on July, on July 29th, and it's clearing the path for service. And we're going to have a, a, another great panel uh, having another deep conversation as as now, you know, what does that what does future service look like moving forward, taking in all of these great things and and all of all of the uh, history and 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 all of the uh, the wisdom that's been shared over the course of our last our last two uh, panels, you know, uh, we're committed. Uh, I'm committed individually. We're committed as a uh, uh, as a company uh, at Lion Strategy, and I know all of our partners are committed in rewriting the story. You know, it's uh, we we look at it, and it looks like. King Kong, you know, or that uh, 10,000 pound elephant in the uh, room. And we can overcome this. You know, uh, you know, my grandfather always told me, you know, how, how do you address the elephant in the room one bite at a time? And uh, so over the, the last couple of weeks, we've taken a series of bites out of this elephant and really promoting authentic conversation. You know, conversations that haven't been commonplace up to this point. So I want to thank you all because that 
demonstrates a level of vulnerability that you brought here um, by opening up, sharing about your personal experiences, uh, sharing your truthful thoughts, and 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 that's just so so much so much value. So um, uh, uh, I stand, you know, just um, in appreciation for for all that that you do. Uh, for anyone that wants to contact the Lion Strategy Group to learn more about what we do, um, uh, you can go to our website at lionstrategy.group, or uh, you can email me directly, and I'll push out my email address to everyone uh, uh, here momentarily. Uh, feel free to, to e uh, email email me. We can set up a time to uh, talk. Because what we do know, and as Dr. King said, this is a massive project, and it, and it has to be positive. We've got to get away from pointing fingers and assigning blame. You know, it, it's a matter of fact that all of these things have happened, and we have great first steps, whether it be reconciliation, receptivity, you know, to acknowledge that. But then what is our next step? Uh, but that next step has to be collaborative, and that next step needs to be held uh, not just in the state of Texas, but in every state of this union. Uh, so with that, uh, thank you all. You should have received uh, my email in your chat box. If you don't know where that is, just scroll down and you'll see a chat feature uh, on the bottom of your screen. So with that, are there any closing remarks? Uh, Dr. Hank, uh, Mike Alexander. Um, Mike, I'd like to uh, just could you, because it's recording and for people to do it, could you just verbally give your email address? Yes. Uh, email address is Mike, M I K E dot Wilson, W I L S O N, at Lion Strategy dot group. That's great. And just an excellent, excellent time. And I thank you all for attending. And let's move forward with some solutions and answers. Mike Alexander. Yeah, I was just going to say to Dr. Brown in the in the sunglasses, there's some psychology to that. And uh, uh, we don't have the time to deal with it right now, but there is huge psychology behind the sunglasses and the hiding behind the sunglasses. But uh, maybe next time we'll have some time to, to, to kind of dive a little deeper into that particular comment because that was a profound comment. And it's it's a subconscious thing on the police officer's part, but, but definitely... Um, I, you know, I wish we had the time to do that. That's, that's a really very good point. But uh, again, thank you guys for uh, your participation and especially our panelists. You guys were great as always. Thank you very much. Okay, thanks everybody. All the best. Y'all have a great week.